Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realise that it was Jesus. He called out to them, Friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said to them, Throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals. There was fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and he gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus had asked him the third time, Do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, Feed my sheep. Very truly I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Jesus turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Jesus saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumour spread among the believers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple whom testifies to these things and who wrote them down. 
we know that this testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would have no room for the books that would be written. Thanks, John. Well, I wonder how many people here this morning have a fridge in their house. Yep, there we, we got one. We got one. Actually, I suspect it's probably most of us. Um, what about a dishwasher? Maybe, yep, we got, he's got both. Maybe, maybe about half of us have a dishwasher, maybe three quarters. Uh, what about an air fryer or a Thermomix? You see, we all make different choices, don't we, about what we need in our lives, what we definitely need, what we think we could probably live without, and what we would really like but we just can't afford. And we're constantly bombarded with advertising about things that apparently we desperately need. Oh, this new five-in-one broom, mop, steamer, lawnmower, hedge trimmer, it's, it's just transformed my life. I don't know how I lived without it. At the moment in Australia, uh, we're also being told by a lot of politicians that we need them. Uh, they tell us that they hold all the answers in their hands and that they know how to create the future that we're longing for. And so whether we realize it or not, we're all constantly making choices and, and curating our lives as we consider the question, what would it mean to have this in my life? And this morning I want us to ask, what might it mean to have the risen Lord Jesus in your life? Have you asked yourself that question before? Why are there millions of people in the world today who are becoming Christians? Why is the church growing so rapidly in various parts of the world, in places like China, where you're actually persecuted for being a Christian? There's something about Jesus. There's something worth investigating. And I hope that as we look at this lovely passage in John chapter 21 this morning, uh, that we're going to get a better idea of what that is. What makes Jesus so amazing? And why might you want him to be the Lord of your life? Well, the story begins with seven men in a boat. That's not the start of a joke. Uh, they were seven of Jesus' closest followers. And they were led by a man called Peter. And Peter says to his friends, I'm going out to fish. And the others say, yeah, we'll come too. Fishing used to be their trade before they started following Jesus full time. Uh, so it's not surprising that they still like to fish. It's good to be out on the water using their hands, working up a sweat as they manage the nets, letting the movement of the sea calm their racing minds. And there would have been a lot on their minds too. Because just over a week ago, their whole world was turned upside down. It started uh, when Jesus, the leader, teacher, miracle worker, was suddenly arrested and then unfairly tried and then executed on a cross. And it came out of the blue. And in that horrific 24 hours, their whole world had deflated uh, like a balloon with the air let out of it. And all their hopes and their dreams for the future, 
all those promises that God had made were gone. All of Jesus' amazing miracles and his power and his healings were reduced to a lifeless body hanging limp on a cross. And so for the next two days, the disciples had hidden in a house. They were completely shell-shocked. They had no idea what to do next. They were terrified that the authorities might hunt them down and kill them. And they were grief-stricken about the death of their dearest friend. Until all of a sudden on Sunday morning, Mary burst through the front door and said, The tomb is empty! And it was true. Impossible as it was to believe, Jesus had somehow come back to life. He had shaken off death and walked out of the grave. And then over the next week, he had appeared to the disciples two different times, in flesh and blood, with the scars to prove it. And so it's not surprising to find the disciples out on a fishing boat, processing the most incredible thing that has ever happened and wondering what next? What's going to happen now? What does this mean for the future? They don't know, but one thing's very clear, the fishing isn't going very well. Verse 4 says, they tried all night, but caught nothing. And then early in the morning, a man on the shore about 90 metres away calls out, Friends, haven't you any fish? And they call back, no. And then for some reason, the man on the shore says to them, well, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. Oh, what would he know? Peter and his crew, they're the professional fishermen. But for some reason, they agree to give it a go. So in verse 6, they throw out the net and suddenly they are unable to haul it in because there are so many fish in it. And this is the first thing we see in our passage. Jesus is our Lord. Jesus is our Lord. As soon as they catch the fish, one of the men in the boat, John, realizes who this mysterious man on the beach is. John cries out, it's the Lord. Who else could do a miracle like that? Who else had so much power he controlled even the fish in the sea? John probably had a flashback to another time when this happened. Many years ago in Luke 5, Jesus had done the same thing. They'd been fishing all night. They caught nothing. Jesus came along and said, oh, throw your net on the other side. And instantly they had caught so many fish that the nets had started breaking. And the boat nearly sank. And now Jesus has revealed himself again in the same way, confirming Without a doubt, he is risen and he is full of power. The man who died is standing on the beach. He's very much alive and he is Lord of the entire world. And if you doubt that, we'll have a look at the 153 flapping fish in the net on the beach. We talked at the start about how we're constantly choosing what to include in our lives, which appliances, which car, which politician, which Friend, but with Jesus it is different. He is not a salesman trying to persuade you that you need this. He's not a politician begging for your vote. Uh, he's more like the law of gravity. He's a reality. 
He's a fact. The only question is, will you admit it? He's not asking for you to vote him in as Lord of the universe. He's saying, I am the Lord, and you need to recognize that. You need to acknowledge that. Which might be quite confronting for us. It can be quite uncomfortable to discover that there is something in our lives we can't control. If Jesus is Lord, well then we're not. What will it mean to have the risen Lord Jesus in your life? It will mean you have to submit to him, you have to obey him, you have to rely on him. But that's not the end of the story. If that makes you uncomfortable, please keep reading and see what else we learn about Jesus in this passage. John is quick to recognize Jesus. It's the Lord. But Peter is the one who's quick to act in verse 7. He puts on his clothes, probably out of respect for Jesus. And then he cannonballs into the water. Who cares about the fish in the boat? He wants to see Jesus. And so Peter swims in ahead of the boat and leaves the others to struggle back to shore, dragging a net full of fish. Why, though, do you think that Peter rushes to Jesus? It's interesting, isn't it? It's a, it's a very different response, if you remember, to what Peter did last time. They caught an enormous amount of fish. Last time, when Peter saw the incredible power of Jesus, he said, Go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. Which is our natural response, isn't it? When we see the glory and the power of Jesus. It overwhelms us. It shames us. We push Jesus away to try and protect ourselves. We say, Lord, I can't handle it. Go away. Give me some distance. But things are different this time. Instead of pushing Jesus away, Peter desperately wants to go to him. Why? Well, I think he's learned something. He's learned that Jesus is incredibly compassionate and kind. He's learned that the power and glory of Jesus isn't something to run away from, but actually something to run towards, because Jesus isn't someone who uses his power to abuse people. No, Jesus wields his power as a servant. This brings us to the second thing we see in our passage. Jesus cares for us. Jesus cares for us. What do they find when they stagger ashore after an exhausting night of unsuccessful fishing? Verse 9. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with some fish on it and some bread. How amazing is that? This is the glorious Son of God who just conquered death. What's he doing? He's, he's caring for his disciples in the most thoughtful, practical way possible. He's cooking them breakfast. They should be serving him, but here he is breaking up the bread and the fish and giving it to them. Aren't you intrigued by this man? Have you ever seen someone with so much power and yet so much tenderness and care? If his name was on the ballot paper at the election coming up, wouldn't you want to vote for him? I would. There's a real tension in the story, isn't there? There's a tension between his incredible power and yet his intimate tenderness. 
And there's also a tension between the undeniable fact that Jesus is alive and the disciples' ongoing confusion as to how that is actually possible. Did you notice verse 12? It says, None of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. You see the tension? They know it's Jesus. They can't argue with the facts. But at a deeper level, they're still working it all out. And I'd really love to say, Jesus, is it really you? How? And maybe like the disciples in this story, you've got a head full of questions. Questions about the Bible. uh, Questions about the resurrection. Or maybe you've got questions about your life about what on earth God is doing, about what the future might hold. Maybe you feel alone in life. Maybe you feel afraid or lost. Well, here on the beach, having breakfast with Jesus, we realize something precious. Being a Christian isn't about having all the answers. It's about being with Jesus. It's about trusting in the risen Lord the powerful one who cares for us. Did you know that that's what Christianity is about? Did you know it's not mostly about obeying rules and trying to be good enough? That first and foremost, it's about a relationship with a real person, an incredibly powerful and caring person. But perhaps you're thinking, well, that's nice. But it's not true for me. I'm different. I'm not good enough to be a Christian. I'm too much of a screw-up. I have hurt people. I have made a real mess of my life. Jesus doesn't want me. And he certainly couldn't use me for much either. I'm pretty useless. I certainly don't have all those gifts that other people have. Well, if that's how you feel, please, please look at the next part of the story with me. Verse 15 describes what happens after breakfast. Jesus suddenly turns to Peter and he addresses the elephant in the room. What's the elephant in the room? Peter knows all too well. Peter knows he did a terrible thing on the night that Jesus was arrested. While Jesus was being interrogated in one room, Peter was next door standing nearby, warming himself by a fire, waiting to see what would happen, when suddenly a servant girl comes over and she says to him, aren't you one of that man's disciples? And before he could catch himself, Peter replied, no, I'm not. And then a little later, someone asked him the same question and Peter denied it again. And then a third person said to him, Are you sure? I'm pretty sure I saw you in the garden with Jesus. And again, Peter denied it. Three times. Three embarrassing, disgusting, wimpy times. He denied that he even knew his dear friend, his Lord, his master, the one who he had spent three years with. Can you imagine how Peter is feeling right now? The knot in his stomach of shame and guilt which tightens every time Jesus just looks at him in the eyes. Even the fire that they're sitting around here. Why why does John draw attention to this fire 
and to the fire Jesus was, uh, that Peter was standing around when he denied Jesus. Only two references to fire in the book of John. Peter can't get this haunting moment out of his head. And what will his future look like now? Surely Jesus won't want to use him. As surely he's messed up too badly. Well, Jesus obviously knows what's going on in Peter's heart because he turns to Peter and he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Most likely Jesus is saying, do you love me more than these other disciples love me? And that is a question that cuts deep because Peter had actually boasted to Jesus that his love was stronger than all the others. Just hours before he denied Jesus like a coward, he had said to him, even if all the others fall away on account of you, I never will. And now Jesus says to him, do you still stand by what you said, Peter? Do you love me more than the others love me? Peter responds with humility. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He's no longer comparing himself to others. Instead, he simply says, You know, Lord, I messed up, but I truly love you. But then Jesus asks him a second time. Same question. And then a third time. Same question. Simon, son of John, do you love me? And we're told that Peter is hurt. He is grieved. He knows exactly what Jesus is getting at. Three denials. Three questions. Why does Jesus do this? Is he rubbing salt in the wounds? No, not at all. I think it's the opposite. Jesus isn't doing this to hurt Peter, but to heal him. He's giving Peter a chance to reaffirm his love for Jesus and be restored. With each pledge of his love, Peter is bringing his denial undone. And that's the third thing we see in this passage. Jesus forgives us. Jesus is Lord. Jesus cares for us. And now Jesus forgives us. Do you know that? It can be hard to believe it sometimes because we live in a world where we hold grudges. And if people hurt us, we cut them off. But Jesus is different. He's genuinely compassionate and kind. He isn't asking to see a resume of all the great things you've done. What he wants is for, for us to come to him humbly with our sin and say, Lord, I've messed up terribly again, but I love you. I don't even love you perfectly, but I, I truly love you. I'm not worthy to have you in my life, but th there's no one I want or need or love more than you. I have to ask you, is there a barrier between you and Jesus this morning? Is there something that you've done or that you keep on doing that's making you think he no longer wants you? Do you feel like you're too broken for Jesus to fix? Too average for Jesus to use? Too sinful for Jesus to change? 
Well, then quite frankly, you haven't yet grasped the enormity of Jesus' compassion and forgiveness. When he died on the cross, he paid the price for all our sins. And when he rose from the dead, he proved that he had been successful and the work was finished. Are you unworthy of this forgiveness? Absolutely. Should that stop us from drawing near to him? Absolutely not. It should actually cause our hearts to burn with love towards him, with thankfulness, with appreciation. And like Peter, we should sprint from the boat to Jesus as quickly as we can. And like Peter, we should come to Jesus and say, I love you. What happens when we do this? Well, that brings us to our fourth and final thing we want to see in this passage. We've seen that the risen Lord Jesus is powerful and he's caring and he's forgiving. Now, finally, we see that Jesus uses us. Jesus uses us. Jesus doesn't just forgive Peter, he uses him. As Peter undoes his denial, Jesus recommissions him. Three times he calls him to action. Feed my lambs. Take care of my sheep. Feed my sheep. Who are the lambs and the sheep? They're Christians, aren't they? They're the church. Whose sheep are they? They belong to Jesus. Not Peter. Jesus loves them. He loves us. And so he is ensuring that his people will be fed by God's word and constantly pointed to him, to the chief shepherd. And that is what it looks like when Jesus uses us. It is not about us being strong or successful. It is about, I love this quote, one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Jesus is saying to Peter, he's saying to you and me, your sin and your failure does not disqualify you from the team. In fact, your weakness is important. You constantly need to remember, I constantly need to remember, it's not about me or my glory, or my strength. Remember on the boat last night, Peter, when you caught nothing and then I came along and filled your nets in two seconds flat? That's what you need to remember. You're weak, but I'm strong. On your own, you can't do anything, but if, if you love me and you humbly follow me, I will use you. It's not saying that following Jesus is easy. In verse 18, Jesus warns Peter that he is going to die an unpleasant death. He talks about his hands being stretched out and then being led somewhere he doesn't want to go. And we know from history that 30 years later, Peter was indeed martyred for his faith. And it's most commonly believed that he was crucified, perhaps even upside down, in order to be different from the Lord he loved. As Peter processes this information, he starts to wonder, what's going to happen to the other disciples? So in verse 21, he says to Jesus, well, what about John? How will John die? And Jesus responds, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. In other words, 
That's not for you to worry about, Peter. Focus on me and what I've called you to do and let God worry about his plans for others. We easily look at the lives of other Christians, don't we? And compare. We compare gifts. We compare struggles. We compare blessings. And Jesus says, eyes over here. Do what I've called you to do and I'll sort out the rest. And maybe, maybe like the disciples in this story, you're feeling uh, discouraged, weak, useless. Jesus offers us encouragement this morning that the risen one who conquered death is standing on the shore. He can fill our nets to bursting. He can soften any heart. He can grow any church. He can transform any situation. Uh, I'm currently doing a building project uh, with my little boy. He's not quite two. Uh, we're out in the backyard. We've got the power tools out. Uh, and he absolutely loves it. Uh, he's out there with me uh, helping wherever he can, getting in the way, passing me screws. But the funny thing is, the funny thing to me is, we've been out there for weeks and he has no idea what we're making. Uh, he doesn't know that I'm making him a cubby fort. I'm saying it right now, he doesn't know. He doesn't know that he's helping to make his own birthday present. Well, that doesn't matter because I know what's happening. I know the plan. I know what we're building. I do the heavy lifting and the measuring and the cutting. Apart from me, he can do nothing. But that's the point. He's not alone. All he has to do is stick with me and trust me. And if you look around in church this morning, I wouldn't blame you for thinking, well, this is a pretty motley bunch. If we were in the fresh food section of Woolies, we would be the weird-shaped carrots in a bag written, The Odd Bunch. We're not very special or powerful, are we? But neither were the first disciples. And yet they were the ones that Jesus used to start the church, to launch a worldwide revolution. And it's a revolution that's still happening today, thousands of Easter's later. In Africa, in China, in places where there's terrible persecution even. Millions of people are still meeting the Lord Jesus and being saved by him. And I believe it is happening here in Launceston too. It might even be happening in your own heart this morning. That the Holy Spirit is moving you and drawing you to Jesus Christ. Showing you he really is the risen Lord the one who cares for you and forgives you and can use you. The one who calls you to follow him. So there's really not many questions more important than do you love Jesus? And will you follow him? We don't know what sufferings lie ahead of us. We don't have answers to all our questions. But we know the only thing we need to know. Jesus is the risen Lord. He is powerful and compassionate. Who else would you rather have breakfast with? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this great little chapter. A curious story in which we get to see Jesus 
as, as a real man and, and at the same time as the, as the risen Lord of all. We thank you, God, that Jesus is alive, that he is powerful over everything when we most certainly are not. And we thank you that he uses that power to care for us, to provide for us, to feed us physically and spiritually. And we thank you that Jesus forgives us and takes even the, the most useless of us. And he washes us clean and he makes us righteous and he even makes us useful. That our very weakness is what qualifies us to serve him and point to him. And we pray, Lord, that every one of us would love Jesus and live for Jesus. That more than any appliance or car or job or relationship or any of those things in our lives that we would be we would be most excited about the risen Lord Jesus. That we would follow him with reckless abandon and give up our lives so that we might have life eternal with him. We pray all of this in his precious name. Amen.